Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Protein, along with fat and carbohydrates, make up one of the three basic macronutrients of the human diet. Yet for something so fundamental, a lot of confusion exists around protein. What's the best kind? How much do you need? When should you eat it? Here to clear up some of that confusion is Don Lehman, Professor Emeritus of Nutrition and one of the world's foremost researchers on the subject of dietary protein. Today on the show, Don explains why animal-based proteins are superior to plant-based proteins, why he thinks collagen is worthless, how much protein you really need to consume, and whether it depends on your activity level and age, what happens when kids don't get enough protein, the optimal times of day to eat protein, who needs to consume protein right after a workout and who doesn't, and whether you can get enough protein in your diet if you do intermittent fasting. We end our conversation with why Don thinks increasing protein consumption can be the most effective way to lose weight. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash protein. All right, Donald Lehman, welcome to the show. Glad to be with you, Brad. So you are a researcher that has done a lot of studies on nutrition, particularly dietary protein. And I want to talk to you about protein today because I think a lot of people have questions about protein. What's the best kind of protein? How much protein should I really be eating in a day? When should I eat protein? And there's a lot of ideas floating out there in the popular press. But let's start off with a sort of a, a brief overview of how our bodies use protein, right? So like I just had some chicken breast before we get on the show. I ate that mm. piece of chicken. How is my body going to use the protein from that chicken? Yeah, I, you're right. I, I think protein's a complicated topic, and you know, I, I think maybe we can simplify it a little bit. So, your chicken breast. You know, I like to remind people that protein is kind of like a vitamin pill. We really don't need the pill. What we need are the 14 vitamins inside of it. We don't talk about the color of the pill or the digestibility of the pill. We talk about the vitamins, and that's really what protein is. It's really just a food delivery system for amino acids. So when you eat that chicken breast, the very first thing your body does is break that protein down into individual amino acids. And there are 20 of them that are naturally occurring. Nine of them our body can't make that we call them essential or indispensable. We have to have them in a daily supply. The other 11, the body can make it, 
it's sort of if you have enough of one amino acid, you can make another one. So nine are essential, 11 are considered non-essential because we can make them. So once we digest it in our GI tract, in our intestine, the body then absorbs them. How do we make them into protein or in the body or muscle protein? Well, the first thing to recognize is that as these amino acids are getting absorbed into the body, the body begins to use them. And about 50% of every amino acid that you take in in a diet gets used before it ever gets to the blood. It gets used by the lining of the intestinal tract, by the liver. And so only about 50% ever get to the blood. And of those, then the body will use some for energy and some can get made into protein. So in muscle, about one out of every seven amino acids going into a new protein uh, muscle protein comes from the diet, and the other six actually are getting reused. So the whole system gets pretty complex at that point. But sort of the the point of all that is that a single amino acid in that chicken breast you ate, it's kind of hard to track it directly into a new protein and muscle. So that's sort of the complexity, and we can go from there as to you know how do we sort out the need and different quality and protein, but that's sort of how the body's using them. Okay, so protein is the delivery for amino acids. Exactly. And, it, and protein doesn't just make muscle tissue, but it also makes other tissue in our body. It's like, I think fingernails, hair needs protein. That's, sure. That's, that's it, a- it, in the body... All adults and even children, you know, anyone over the age of about 16 has to make 250 to 300 grams of new protein in the body every day. Proteins that are in your liver, we're replacing them almost hourly. Proteins in the blood might last uh, 15, 16 days. Proteins in the muscle might last 30 or 40 days, but we're continuously replacing those. In fact, if you sort of look at at it on a total body basis, we replace the equivalent of every protein in our body about four times per year. So there's this big turnover going on all the time. And that's important as we repair our body and sort of in the aging process, repair and replacement is really important. Let's talk about protein and muscle. People typically, that's what they associate. I'm going to consume protein to grow muscle tissue. And the process where our body turns amino acids that we've consumed into muscle tissue, that's called muscle protein synthesis, correct? Right. So protein synthesis is a term of every tissue, whether you're talking about the heart or the brain or the liver or muscle. So it's protein synthesis. And as you point out, people have kind of focused on muscle but in every tissue, it's the same. Okay. So let's talk about the type of protein we consume. How does the type of protein we consume influence protein synthesis? Yeah. So again, we we talk about protein as just a food delivery system for amino acids. So the type of protein really reflects the balance of amino acids. And as I said at the beginning, we absolutely require the nine essential amino acids. And so if you look at different proteins, whether you're talking about a dairy protein like whey protein or a plant protein like soy protein, you look at the distribution of those nine essential amino acids and every protein's a little different. What we know though is that 
proteins that come from animal sources, and in this case, I'll include eggs and fish, all sort of animal sources versus plant sources, proteins that come from animal sources always have a better distribution and a higher distribution of those essential amino acids. Uh, if you want to think about it, plants plants have amino acids for the sake of plants. They're, they're not assuming they're going to get eaten. So they have it to make roots and stems and flowers and seeds, which are pretty different than brains and hearts and skin and, and muscle. So the way to think about it is, you know, plant proteins have amino acids for to making plant products, you know, plant structures. And so I think one of the research you found, I've read this other place, is that part of the problem with plant-based proteins is that they, they don't have enough of a particular type of amino acid that helps kickstart protein synthesis, correct? Right. So of those nine essential amino acids, <clears throat> there are three that we often say are limiting in plants. And those three are lysine, methionine, and leucine. Of those three, one that I've studied a lot is called leucine. And what we discovered was that leucine has a very unusual role in uh, triggering muscle protein synthesis. For reasons we don't fully understand, the body has evolved to recognize the increase in leucine in the blood as a indicator that the meal was well enough balanced to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Another way to sort of think about that is in the liver, you have to be making proteins 24 hours a day. If you're not making them in the middle of the night, you're going to die. I mean, you just have to be making them. Same with the brain or the heart. In muscle, we only do it when we have a meal that is adequate. We call it an anabolic response to a meal. And for whatever reason, the body evolved to recognize leucine as that signal that the meal is adequate. So leucine is a, is a very important amino acid for defining what we call protein quality. Is there enough leucine to trigger muscle protein synthesis? And that's why people who do a vegetarian diet, they have a harder time getting the necessary proteins, they don't, the, the plant base doesn't have enough leucine. Right. So if you look at, just for example, if you look at whey protein, which is a protein that's become very popular with people who are trying to build muscle, if you look at the amino acids in whey protein, 12% of those amino acids are leucine. But if you look at a grain like quinoa, which people think of as a, a really good plant-based protein, leucine is 6%. So you have to have twice as much quinoa protein to trigger protein synthesis. That translates into something over seven cups of quinoa at a meal to trigger muscle protein synthesis. So from a calorie standpoint, from a volume standpoint, it's hard to eat enough plant-based protein to get to the leucine number. Yeah, it sounds like you'd have a lot of gas. You'd be bloated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you get a lot of fiber. I mean, quinoa, in my mind, quinoa is a great carbohydrate source that happens to have good protein in it. So, it, you know, it's a great fiber. It has good nutrients. It's a great food, but it's a pretty poor protein source alone. So you really need to have something else with it. You know, whether you're going to mix 
say soy protein with it or you know tofu or you need higher protein sources to make it work can you supplement with leucine to kickstart protein synthesis you can at some level we have done that sometimes in situations like somebody is ill in a hospital and they just can't eat much We've shown and others have shown that if you take in 15 grams of protein, but then supplement that with leucine, you can get up to that threshold to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. We know that you need to have around three grams of leucine in the meal. So you could get, say, one and a half from plant-based proteins and add in another one and a half as a supplement of leucine, and you can get to that three-gram level. Okay, so in terms of delivering amino acids, animal-based is going to be superior to plant-based proteins. Of the animal-based proteins, are there are some better than others? We're talking like meat or egg or whey. You know, I think you I think you have to decide what your goal is. If your goal is to have a breakfast that stimulates muscle protein synthesis, and that's really your only go- goal, then whey makes a perfect shake because it's very high in leucine. You can stimulate muscle protein synthesis with only about 23, 24 grams of protein. On the other hand, if you're thinking about a balanced diet, something like beef protein is a great source because not only is it a good source of the essential amino acids like leucine, but it's also very rich in iron and zinc and selenium and B6 and B12. So, you know, you have to think about what your goal is. Eggs is another example where the egg is a very balanced nutrient overall, vitamins, minerals, as well as protein. So, you know, you kind of have to think about the balance there. Fish, for example, is a very good protein source but the vitamins and minerals tend to be lower. So again, you know, what's the balance? And I, you know, I think that's why nutrition, we've always said, well, have a varied diet. Don't believe that, well, the only protein I should eat is fish or the only protein I should eat is, is white meat chicken. Those are good protein sources, but actually low in other nutrients. Oh, yeah, I think that's interesting. You got to think about the the whole picture, not just protein. Yeah. You know, in general right now, we're beginning to focus more on what we call the food matrix. You know, we've had a what we might call a reductionist approach for a long time where we think about a food, well, does it have enough vitamin C or does it have enough vitamin D or does it have enough of amino acids? But now we're trying to think about it more as a meal complex and, and a whole diet. Well, speaking of this idea that you know protein is just a delivery capsule for amino acids, we talked about the fact that you can supplement leucine. Can you get the benefits of all the amino acids just by taking an amino acid supplement? Uh, you can. That's incredibly expensive to do <laughs> to take in enough protein to you know to get a hundred grams of amino acids per day would be an incredibly expensive. But people have certainly shown it in hospital situations. You know, people who can't eat, we can do an IV into their arm or whatever and supply those amino acids. So that certainly can be done. My Attitude about that is a little like people self-supplementing with vitamins. Do you really have enough knowledge to do the chemistry that resembles food intake that has evolved over a million years? You know, I don't think most people have the resources or the knowledge to really do supplementation. 
Okay. What about collagen proteins? I've been seeing a lot about that. I got my whole foods and I see a lot of rows of collagen proteins. What's the quality of collagen proteins? Collagen by any measure is the single worst protein you could ever see. Okay. (laughs) It's deficient in at least four essential amino acids. It's one that I always sort of scratch my head at. I look at all these testimonials out there that people think that collagen's great, but the reality is from a scientific research standpoint, it's awful. I think it's a total waste of money. So obviously I'm really negative about it. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who believe in it. So, you know, I sort of remain open-minded, but at the same time, I've seen no data to make me believe that it's anything more than just a nitrogen source. When you look at the true protein requirement, it's actually two parts. The first part is getting the nine essential amino acids, and the second part is getting additional nitrogen. That nitrogen we refer to as nonspecific. And I think, for example, collagen is nothing more than a nitrogen source. So, you know, if you have a relatively low protein diet and you want to supplement it with expensive collagen, I guess that works. But if you're just trying to get adequate protein, collagen's a lousy source. Okay. So the takeaway there, quality, the type of protein, animal base is going to be your best bet to get all nine of the essential amino acids in the right dosage to kickstart and have muscle protein synthesis going on. If you're doing a vegetarian diet, you might have to supplement with a higher source protein, like a soy protein. And then, yeah, wasting your money with collagen and amino acids. Nature's already got the the pill for you. It's animal-based protein. So just go with that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And people you know, will often say, well, he's really negative about vegetarianism. That's not really the case. My problem with it is that if you look at the data, all the survey data, what you see is that vegetarians typically have lower protein intakes and they have lower protein quality. So that's a risk, you know, and I think that if you're making that lifestyle choice, you need to understand it. My personal preference would be a blended. I don't think it's all or nothing. I think you can be more plant-based. I think that's great. But using fish or eggs or cheese or something to make it more balanced, I think, is a better choice. So, you know, I I have no problem with being plant-based. Being totally vegan is a real challenge. You're sort of forced to go to ultra-processed foods. You need to have things like soy protein isolates or pea protein isolates to supplement your diet. Or like you said, maybe essential amino acids, which are very expensive. So, you know, it's just a challenge. And my fear is the average adult doesn't have the knowledge to make that work. All right. So let's talk about how much protein we should be consuming. Because there's a lot of different numbers out there in the popular press. What's the typical amount that's recommended? I think it's the uh, the National Academy of Medicine has put out a like a recommended daily amount. What's the amount that they recommend and what has your research shown to be an optimal amount of protein? Okay. So the National Academy of Sciences and the Institute of Medicine sort of sets dietary guidelines. So let's let's take a non-protein example. So vitamin C, with every nutrient, the 
Institute of Medicine recommends a range for the nutrient. So for vitamin C, the low end of the range, which we call the RDA, recommended dietary allowance, is 60 milligrams. But we know that you can go to an upper range with vitamin C of maybe up to 10 grams per day, you know, more than 10 times the minimum RDA. So we know that the RDA prevents a deficiency, scurvy, but when you get a cold or you know concerned about COVID or something like that, people will take 500 milligrams or 1,000 milligrams. So the difference between the minimum and the optimum. So let's apply that to protein. The Institute of Medicine sets the minimum, the RDA, at uh, 0.8 grams per kg, which is around 0.3 grams per pound. But it says there's a range up to some upper limit. And we know that is up around a gram per pound, so a big range there. What we now know is the optimum range for most adults is somewhere between about 0.5 and 0.7 grams per pound. 1.2 to 1.8 grams per kg is the way we talk about it. So again, we need to recognize that for every nutrient, there's a range of intake the RDA, which people hear about, is the minimum to prevent a deficiency. In fact, it's defined at a level where 97% of the people don't show a deficiency, but 3% will actually show a deficiency. And if we look at national survey data, what we know is that in women over 60 years of age, 40% are actually below the RDA. So in general, women in particular are particularly low in their dietary protein intake. Men are a little bit higher, but still not up in the range that we think is optimal. Okay, so just to put some concrete numbers to this, okay, the RDA is the minimum you need to to make sure you're not wasting away. So let's say you're a 200 pound man. What'd you say the RDA was about 0.36 so, grams? Yeah, so so the range of intake in the United States, the RDA, depending on body weight, is sort of between about 56 and 66 grams per day. Average intake in the United States is around 80. We think that most adults should be above 100. And again, it's body weight. So you know if you take... A 250-pound male, that person will have twice the amount of protein as a 125-pound female. That's crazy that like most people are only getting 80 grams of protein a day. That's the average based on the national surveys. Again, men a little higher, maybe a little closer to 90, and women a little lower, closer to 70. But the average is 80. Okay. Do protein requirements change for men and women? So if you're a man, do you need more protein than women? It's based on lean body mass. It's based on body weight. So men typically are going to weigh more than women, so they need more protein. But it's, you know, a 150-pound woman and a 150-pound man would have essentially the same requirements. Okay. Slightly different because typically women will have a little more body fat, a little less lean body mass. But in essence, the requirements are the same based on body weight. Does the requirement change or the optimal amount change if you're physically active? That's a good question. Interestingly enough, people generally assume that, well, if I'm lifting weights and building 
uh, you know, trying to build body mass, I need more protein. It's actually endurance exercise. We know that endurance exercise burns about 10 grams of protein per hour of exercise, like running, a marathon runner, for example. Uh, so if you go out and doing, you know, three hour runs, by definition, you need 30 grams of more protein than normal. Okay, so uh, whenever you exercise, you're going to need more protein. And that's not just for weightlifting. I, I think that's really interesting. Like if you do a lot of endurance sports, you need to be increasing your protein intake a lot. Speaking of you know, consuming protein because you're lifting weights to get stronger, I think a lot of people have this idea that, well, if I megadose on protein, it's going to help me build more muscle tissue. But your research has found that probably at a certain point, consuming more protein won't have any benefit. Yeah, our methods aren't great for determining sort of small differences between protein intakes. What we find is that a lot of bodybuilders will look at an intake of like a gram per pound, which translates into about 2.2 grams per kg. The research shows we really can't tell any difference between 1.8 grams per kg and 2.2. So you know, most bodybuilders are probably over-consuming protein, but again, you know, they're looking for sort of a maximum effort. So I don't see any problem with that, but the research doesn't really support any real benefit above about 1.8 grams per kg. And again, I think that translates into about 0.8 grams per pound. Okay. So yeah, I consume right now, I'm doing about a gram per pound. So I, I get about 200 grams yeah. of pro. I'm, I'm 190. That's, that's, I'm 190, really, that's yeah. very common for people who are trying to lift weights. And, and again, you have to think about protein in the context of the whole diet. So if you don't eat 200 grams of protein, what are you going to eat? And a lot of people say, well, I want to be sure I don't eat the carbohydrates because that causes me to retain more water and I don't like the way I feel or whatever. I have, you know, tendency toward diabetes. So, you know, from a pure muscle building standpoint, we think that around 0.8 grams per pound is totally adequate, but there's nothing wrong with a gram per pound if that sort of suits your needs. What happens with the excess protein that your body doesn't need? Excess is an interesting concept. Let's think about you in terms of a gram per pound per day. You know, how much muscle mass are you gaining this week? Probably Not nothing. Much, yeah. So if you're eating 200 grams of protein per day, where is it going? Basically, you have to burn every one of those grams, the equivalent of every one. So basically, whether you eat 60 grams of protein per day or 200 grams per, of protein per day, you're going to burn it all for energy. You use it for protein synthesis, but at some level, you have to get rid of every gram or you have to store it in some way, which means you're gaining weight. So again, people think about burning the excess. The reality is, I mentioned at the beginning, 50% of the amino acids that come into the body are burned in the GI tract or the liver before they ever get to the blood. So this whole concept of burning the excess is kind of a vague concept because we're always burning everything we eat. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. 
Suits started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a long-time podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. 
masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. And I also, I think it's important to note that you highlight research that eating a high protein diet, it's not going to damage your kidneys. I mean, that, that's an idea that's out there, right? Like too much protein is bad for you. If you do have some sort of kidney disease, a high protein diet might be an issue. But if you're healthy, eating a lot of protein won't do anything to you. Basically, you know, any, like you said, any excess protein will be used in the body for something else. So yeah, I think the big takeaway there overall is that if you're a physically active male, like 0.8 to 1 gram per pound of body weight is probably what you're looking at. That's that's a target where the science shows, uh, you know, has really good data. We think that's your the upper range that makes any sense. And frankly, the research shows 0.8 is probably adequate, but there's nothing wrong with going to a gram per pound. Right. So if you're a 200 pound man, that would be 160 grams per day. Right. Protein, you know, yeah. up to 200, up as to you 200. pointed out. Yeah. And people, I think that's a lot of protein, but I mean, it's not, once you kind of figure things out, you know what's a high source of protein. So, and it's easy to supplement with a whey protein. Whey protein's fantastic. It's cheap and you can get a lot of great protein bang for your buck. Yeah, with it. I think most people find that amount of protein pretty hard to consume. Most women, we've done a lot of research with women, uh, particularly looking at weight loss, we find it extremely difficult to keep women above 100 grams per day. I personally eat probably 100 to 120 per day. I weigh about 160 pounds. So, uh, you know, okay. again, I think if if you're motivated toward bodybuilding, uh, that's great. But again, we we think the healthy range is sort of in that, you know, a lower end of about 0.55 grams per pound up to a gram per pound. So falling within that range is probably okay, depending on your personal goals. Something I've heard is that as you get older, you know, to your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you have to consume more protein. Is that true? What we know is that the efficiency of protein use goes down with age. Where does that start? We think it starts somewhere around 40, maybe 35. We know that when you're still growing, your body is kind of driven by hormones. So when you're in your teens or in your 20s, your body is making protein driven by growth hormone, IGF-1, insulin. Once you stop growing... Now you go into the maintenance phase. We know that everything we've been talking about, all of this meal balance kind of thing, that starts to come into play in your mid-30s. So your point about it, the efficiency going down, we think that starts in the 40s. So people need to be making adjustments in their 40s. And certainly by the time you get out into 60 and 70, now you're confronted with the issue that your total calorie needs per day begin to go down but your protein need is at least as high as when you were 16 or 25, but now you need to get it in less total calories. So the quality of your diet needs to go up. Your nutrient density needs to go up. You need to get more amino acids per calorie you eat. And it probably, you know, is it higher than when you're 25? It might be. It might actually be higher. I think it's one of the reasons why you tend to find more vegetarians who are between 20 and 40 than you do between 60 and 80. You're just really hard to pull that off to get the protein you need with the reduced calories. 
So just correct me if I'm wrong here, make sure I understand. So as you get older, does our body just become less responsive to protein and we just have to consume more of it to kickstart that protein synthesis? Exactly. When you're young, muscle protein synthesis and a mechanism we know of as mTOR is very sensitive to insulin. And so you grow because of hormones. Once you get beyond mid-30s, now it becomes sensitive to the quality of the protein and particularly that amino acid leucine. So we're changing what the body, how the body regulates muscle protein synthesis. And as we get older, it becomes more and more sensitive to the leucine amount. Okay. So any recommendations there just concrete numbers if you're say you're so, 70 so years old that we know that the leucine trigger amount is about three grams probably you begin to get a response at like 2.5 grams some people have used up to four uh, we usually use the number of three grams of leucine as your target to activate that system so if you look at a mixed diet then let's say you're, you're having a meal that has some animal protein, some plant protein, we usually use the number of around 8% leucine in a mixed meal. So that means your minimum threshold, you may have seen the meal number of like 30 grams, 30 to 35 grams per meal. That's assuming leucine makes up about 8% of the protein. So to get to two and a half to three grams, you need at least 30, 35 grams of total protein. So that's where that meal number comes from. Okay, so just to recap, as you get older, your body becomes less sensitive to protein. So you you may need to increase protein intake to make up for that. So I think the big takeaway there is just, yeah, be as you get older, be more aware of your protein and then think about the how much protein you're getting at each meal. And we're going to talk more here about protein distribution. But let's talk about kids. What do we know about the protein requirements for children? So they change during aging. So in the first year, first year, the two years, the protein requirement is at 2.2 grams per kg, so a gram per pound. So, wow. you know, as a child, as a very young child, it's now what we're talking about for older adults, okay? The belief then is as the rate of growth slows down, it slowly goes from 2.2 down to 0.8 for, you know, a 16-year-old. So there's that that shifting process. I think the research is beginning to question, does it really go down like that? Uh, we know that you know your rate of building protein is slowing down, but you're building and replacing so much protein that actually isn't growth. So I think we're beginning to question that. One of the important things about children versus adults is for adults, we're now talking about the meal distribution of protein and leucine. So we talk about having 35 grams of protein per meal to get enough leucine. That doesn't seem to be true for children. Children will respond at very small meals. If a child has five grams of protein at a snack or 10 grams for protein for breakfast, they'll grow perfectly fine. Muscle protein synthesis is perfectly fine. So an average 10, 12-year-old is probably targeting around 50 grams per day, and that can be distributed kind of in any way they want. It's not meal-specific like it is for adults. Okay. So with kids with body weight, what's the the ratio? How many grams per kilogram you're looking at for a child? Is it the same for an adult? So again, it's you know the RDA for children over like six 
is that, you know, 0.35 grams per pound. Okay. So it's the RDAs, 0.8 grams per kg. Okay. And again, that's just the minimum. Do we know what happens if kids don't get adequate protein in childhood? Does it have any long-term effects? Oh, yeah. I mean, the biggest international problem with malnutrition is availability of protein. So with growth stunting, there's a lot of, you know, early in my career, I did a lot of international work with children and malnutrition and growth stunting. And so we know that if children don't develop the lean body mass they should when they're young, there's a real high risk that they're going to be obese. If they don't have the lean body mass, they'll tend to deposit more body fat. So one of my concerns now is that, you know, as mothers are hearing about everybody should have a more plant-based diet and they start translating that to children, there's a real risk that we're going to induce malnutrition in children. They're just not going to grow correctly. And that's a long-term risk. One of the examples I like using is if you take a a common wheat cereal and the serving size might be, let's say it's a cup, has four grams of plant protein, say a wheat protein. If you look on the label, they'll say, well, you take that cereal and you mix it with six grams of milk. We now have 10 grams. And that turns out to be exactly balanced for essential amino acids. But now we're hearing about plant-based proteins, and so they say, well, switch to soy milk. Well, we're not telling people very well, and I don't think they get, is that soy milk is deficient in the same amino acids that the wheat cereal is deficient in. And so to get a balanced protein mix, you have to have over 25 ounces of soy fluid milk to balance that meal, 25 ounces. We're nearing a quart. And if you go to almond milk, which is even worse, now you need over 50 ounces to make that work. So mothers need to recognize that that basically if they're doing that with plant-based milks, they're creating an amino acid imbalance. And while I said that you know, younger children can get along with protein at any meal, they still have to have a balanced ratio of essential amino acids. So uh, my comment earlier is that I'm not sure most adults have the knowledge of how to create totally vegetarian diets. They might be able to do it, but very few can. Okay, so uh, kids who don't get enough protein in childhood, they're not going to develop lean muscle mass. And as a consequence, they might develop more adipose tissue, which could result in type 2 diabetes, uh, metabolic syndromes. Exactly. So that's, you know, that's what we saw with the international work. If the children are gross stunted, did not develop the lean body mass during their early, you know, their first 14, 15 years, then they're prone to developing obesity. And as you said, all of the diseases that go with that, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, they're much more prone to those kinds of things. Let's shift to protein timings. That's something I think a lot of people have read about, that there's certain times of the day that it's better to eat protein. Is there anything to that idea? Like, you know, should you consume protein after a workout? Is morning or dinner better time for protein? So so let's sort of complete the comment with children. As I wanted to emphasize, timing doesn't seem to be as important for children. So uh, when we talk about timing, we're talking about adults. What the research shows is that probably the first meal of the day may very well be the most important. We know that we're coming out of an overnight fast. 
we know that all of the mechanisms for muscle protein synthesis are shut down. And until you eat a protein meal that has enough leucine, until you get to 35 grams of protein at a meal, your muscle stays what we call catabolic. It's breaking itself down. So we think that the first meal is critical. We also think that a later meal, what we don't really know is the you know, how important is the middle meal? It's, you know, something you might do in the middle of the day. Nobody's really studied that, so we don't really know. But we do, we know for a hundred percent certainty that that first meal, and I'm I'm sort of avoiding calling it breakfast because that implies that it needs to be super early or something. But whenever you choose to eat it, whether it's seven in the morning or eleven in the morning, that first meal needs to be high protein. You mentioned after exercise. We did a lot of research and others have done a lot of research with exercise because exercise is sort of a catabolic period. Protein synthesis is depressed. And so we're looking at recovery. How's the best way to build muscle? The thing to remember about that is almost all of that research is done with untrained individuals doing an acute exhaustive exercise. What we know is that the more trained you are, probably the less important that becomes. So if you're just beginning an exercise, you're out of shape, you're just beginning, having protein, you know, 15, 20 grams after your exercise within the next hour or so probably is a useful way to recover. But if you're well-trained doing the same thing week after week, when you have your protein after an exercise probably doesn't make much difference. It's really the total amount per day. Most extreme bodybuilders will probably take in protein at least four times a day. So if you want one of those to be after exercise, that's great. But if your next meal happens three hours after exercise, that's fine too. So I think the whole after exercise thing has been distorted a little bit. All of the research has been done with untrained people doing exhaustive exercise so if you're well-trained, the timing's probably not nearly as important. So you mentioned to kickstart protein synthesis with that first meal, you got to have 35 grams of protein. Is there any other research about distribution of protein throughout the day? So beyond that first meal, does it matter how you distribute your protein? It doesn't really seem to. There's, there's pretty good data that having a larger meal later in the day is important. So like a dinner meal that has maybe 50, 60 grams of protein. And there's a little bit of research, Luke Van Loon in the Netherlands has shown that for individuals, again, interested in bodybuilding, having a fourth meal before bedtime, sort of shortening that. So typically, a lot of people will have you know, their dinner at seven and then you know, a breakfast at seven. So they're going 12 hours without protein coming in. So having another protein intake at like 10 before bed is something that bodybuilders will often adopt. So typically we always try and tell people that if you're a normal, healthy adult, try and get two meals at least, your breakfast and dinner, where the protein amount is above 35 grams. If you're trying to gain muscle mass, you should have at least three meals and possibly even four. So meal distribution takes on, again, a little different look depending on what your personal goals are. Uh, I know intermittent fasting has become really popular. So people might have a shortened eating window. So it might just be like a few hours. Is it possible to get all your protein requirements in that 
like maybe four hours that you have to eat? Yeah, I I don't like patterns as short as four hours. We know that the mechanisms for regulating protein synthesis, once you turn them on, they're all active for at least five hours. So I think that the next meal needs to be separated by at least more than five hours. You know, I, I like the concept of, I mean, the, the idea of time-restricted feeding is to reduce your just total eating. It's a calorie control issue. Uh, I don't have a problem with that, but I think that the two meals should probably be at least six hours apart. And again, you know, how do you get in 150 grams of protein, you know, six hours apart? So 150, that means you're getting in 75 per meal. We know that your optimal use of protein for muscle mass probably plateaus at somewhere around 60. So, you know, you talked about excesses. There's probably a limit to how much protein you can use at a single meal. And we think the upper end of that is probably 55 to 60 range. Okay. And so, yeah, this would be below, like if you're a, a, you know, an adult male or female, like that's not enough protein for like optimal, right? Yeah. So if you're trying to do weight loss, if you're trying to restrict your calories, most of those people will probably be targeting you know, 100 to 120 grams of protein per day, distributing in that in two meals of 55 grams is probably okay. But if you're trying to be a bodybuilder with 200 grams per day, putting 100 in each meal is a really bad idea. You need to distribute that across three or four meals to optimize the effect. Speaking of weight management, is there any benefit of protein when it comes to weight management? Yeah, we've done a lot of research on that. And so, two ways to think about it. One is we want enough protein to protect muscle. One of the the problems of weight loss is what we call yo-yo dieting. People will restrict their calories, lose 20, 30 pounds, and three months later, they gain it back. Well, every time you lose body weight quickly, up to half of the weight you're losing is muscle, is lean body mass, somewhere between 35 and 50% is going to be muscle mass. And so when you lose it quickly and then regain it, yo-yo back up, what you gain back is just the fat and you've lost muscle. So that makes it harder and harder to lose weight over time because you're losing your lean body mass. So the first reason we want to use protein is to try and prevent muscle loss during weight loss. We call it protein sparing. And we've shown that that's very effective. The other aspect is when you're trying to really reduce calories, what should you reduce? And most of the research shows that reducing carbohydrates is an important way to go. So when we add protein, we usually add it as a substitute for carbs. So, you know, we'll we'll add, you know, whatever, 50 more grams of protein to a diet and replace 50 grams of carbohydrate. So we're going to higher protein, lower carbohydrate diets. When we do that, we know that we reduce hunger, we increase satiety, uh, we stimulate thermogenesis, the amount of heat you burn from meals, so you're just wasting calories, and you also uh, basically are sparing muscle protein loss, you're reducing, you're correcting body composition. So there's a lot of reasons to increase protein for weight loss. We know that it's a highly, probably the most effective way to correct body composition and lose weight. 
So I've heard about this idea called the protein leverage hypothesis, and I'm intrigued yes. by it. Uh, what do you know about that? Can you walk us through that idea? Yeah. So Steve Simpson in Australia is a nutritional anthropologist. Uh, he's actually a pretty good friend. He basically looked at the diet of humans, but basically all animal species. And he realized that basically all animals eat toward a protein target. And it's around 16, 17% of calories. And what his concept was, you know, we, we look back in time and we realize that in the mid 1980s, all of a sudden we see this epidemic increase in obesity in the United States. And we start wondering why. And one of the things that happened at that point is people were so afraid of cholesterol and saturated fat, we developed what was called the food guide pyramid. And the food guide pyramid said, eat a lot less animal products because that's the way you reduce cholesterol and saturated fat and eat a lot more grain products. What that did was dilute out the nutrient density of the diet. People ate 40% more calories from grains. We diluted the protein down. And so the protein leverage hypothesis is, is that for adults to get to the protein target, they had to eat a lot more calories. And that seems to be exactly what people did. They ended up eating 350 to 400 more calories. Our protein intake stayed about the same, but we ate 400 calories more to get to it. And we think, or that the theory is that that was really the origins of obesity epidemic. And so we're now seeing sort of a shift back to people who are much more protein conscious, People are trying to reduce the carbohydrate, and we're seeing some people at least having much more success in controlling a body weight. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it makes sense. And I, I can see it with snack foods, right? A lot of the snacks, they're high-carb, low-protein. So people's bodies are trying to hit their daily protein target, you know, that the, what the body wants, but they just keep eating and eating in order to reach it, and they eat through a lot more calories to get to the protein their body wants. Yeah, I mean, the the food industry has done a great job of developing foods that are very savory. The body sort of recognizes them as that protein kind of taste, and, and they're very addictive. And so to your point, we're seeing a lot more snack foods, a lot more high-carbohydrate, grain-based products in the diet, and people are getting too many calories. Most of the data suggests that obesity is really associated with snacking more than it is with meals. And, you know, I, I think that's true. I think portion size is part of the issue, but I think the calories we consume outside of mealtime are a huge part of the issue. And you know, a way to counter that is be more conscious about the protein you consume, be more deliberate about it. When we teach it for weight loss, we always teach people that anytime you eat, you have to focus it on protein. You have to make a protein decision first. And so you should never be eating anything that isn't focused on protein. Uh, and, you know, that it may be that you're making a choice of eating some almonds for a snack or cheese or something, but you should always be protein conscious. And likewise, when you're starting a meal, we teach people that the first thing you eat at any meal needs to be the protein part. Your first bite needs to be a protein bite. So when they bring out the bread or the chips or while you're waiting, you can't eat that until the protein arrives. 
Because your body doesn't recognize carbs really for satiety very well. The example I like is, okay, we all go out for dinner and at the end of the dinner and you're basically full, if they bring out another steak, it's totally revolting. You're not going to eat it. But if they bring out chocolate cake, you're perfectly happy to eat it. (laughs) We just simply don't register carbohydrates in the same way. Well, Donald, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? So, you know, I'm on what used to be called Twitter at, with at Don Lehman. So, you know, I, I try and provide some science there. I have a website called metabolictransformation.com. And uh, my colleague, Dab- Gabrielle Lyon, and I ha- have a book coming out called Forever Strong that will come out October uh, 17th, I believe, coming up. So new book, Forever Strong, I think will be a great piece of information for the general public. Fantastic. Well, Donald Lehman, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, Brad. My guest today was Dr. Don Lehman. You can find more information about his work at his website, metabolictransformation.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash protein, where you can find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay. Reminding you to listen to the own podcast, but put what you've heard into action. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.